institutions of higher learning are also places for progressive, justice-oriented activism. And I think that social media provides an avenue for those institutions to provide that leadership in digital spaces. And, and why shouldn't they? When it comes to social media and all things digital in higher ed, Eric Stoller is one of the most influential and respected people out there. He spent the last five years living and working in the UK and has established himself as a true thought leader. And sadly for us Brits, he's now headed back to the other side of the Atlantic. But before he set off, he was able to join me as the very first guest of this brand new podcast. So stick around for one of the best things you'll listen to all day. From the Access Platform, he's Eric, I'm Dave, and this is Inspiration on Tap. And I'll do a lot of ums that you have to cut out. No big deal. Oh, I tend to leave those in. Mm-mm, no, no, I, this better be super polished. And, and actually, I'm going to need a British accent. Okay, uh, so you just want me to make you sound like a... Like work it out, man. <laughs> right. Work it out. Just, you know, I, I need to sound like Siri or uh, Alexa or something like that. Uh, so uh, my name is Eric Stoller, and I'm a higher education consultant, writer, blogger. I uh, focus and specialize on uh, digital engagement and how it enhances the student experience, things like teaching and learning, career development, as well as working with a lot of in- different institutions on their marketing and comms. And I also do the student affairs and technology blog for InsideHigherEd.com. Well, great stuff. Eric, thank you so much for taking the time and joining me on the podcast. It's it's a conversation I've been wanting to sit down and record with you for a long time, and we finally get to do oh, it. Yeah, just, thanks for having me. Just before you leave the country as well. Um, so, I, I mean, people... People are going to know you probably either, certainly in this country, they, they'll either know you through your speaking or your consultancy or, or through your social media presence. But what's what's your background? Because I know you've kind of referred to your job as this sort of made up thing that you do. So how did you end up in this made up thing that you do? Yeah, I would say this is sort of my favorite uh, self-created job. Uh, and I, I kind of fell into it by accident. I mean, I, I started out uh, in a higher education marketing role at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Mm-hmm. And this was before I went on to do a postgrad or any of that. And I, you know, kind of grew up in the middle of nowhere in, in rural Iowa in the Midwest in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And got this job at this big university in Chicago. I thought I had made it. thought I was sort of at the, you know, this is as far as I'm going to go. I'm, I'm, I've succeeded. And at one point during that position, someone said, where did you go and get your master's degree? And I said, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I don't have a master's degree. I don't think I need one. And they said, well, if you're going to continue on in higher education in sort of a, a student affairs admin uh, sort of focused role, you're going to need a master's degree or a postgraduate degree. And so I ended up uh, looking around the country at various programs. And Oregon State University actually gave me a tremendous offer. They were going to... Um, pay me uh, like, like a graduate assistantship role where I was paid uh, to attend this postgrad program. And I worked, I think, 20 hours a week. Mm-hmm. And I was focused on enrollment management, admissions, recruitment, uh, new student orientation, induction, uh, financial aid, and some of the stuff associated with the registrar's office all around digital. Though. So it was all about the web uh, and how the web could be used in, in various capacities to support those functional areas. And it was there that uh, this was would have been in 2004 when Facebook launched mm-hmm. in the U.S. And so, very early on, I sort of was aware that Facebook existed. Started you know using it a little bit, and then started using WordPress at the time to write my own blog, um, which 
was very boring for a lot of people, I'm sure, at the time. But for me, it was a great experience just in terms of foundation of learning sort of the tools. And then I I graduated with my master's degree and and was always focused on how technology could support student success. And back in 2004, 05, 06, in, in at least U.S. higher education, people didn't understand the connections between technology and student success. It was still very much, if you're into student success, it's all about the one-to-one conversational experience, face-to-face, mm-hmm. nothing to do with digital. And I, I always thought differently with it. And then I did a year of consulting after I graduated and I, I, I hated it. It was the experience where I felt so lonely and I was used to an office and I was used to having colleagues. And, um, and I came back to the university with a full-time position Uh, as an academic advisor, Mm -hmm. and I sort of morphed this role into someone who was working with students one-on-one on on a daily basis, but also doing web communications for a college within the university. And then I started writing for InsideHigherEd.com, and then I started uh, getting invited to speak at conferences and events where people started paying me, Mm -hmm. and something had to give, and because I only had so much time and I was using my my leave, my holiday, uh, for work. And so I quit my full-time job and said, okay, now I'm a a writer, speaker, blogger, consultant, and I've been doing it ever since 2010 uh, in the U.S., in Mexico, Canada, here in the U.K., Ireland, Spain, Italy, New Zealand, kind of all over the place. Uh, And it's, it's obviously evolved as the tools have evolved. You know, Facebook has changed, Twitter came around, YouTube has changed a lot, you know, Instagram, obviously, or Snapchat or, you know, TikTok now or blogs. And it's just been a a really interesting roller coaster uh, of of a job and of of an experience working with institutions and and just sort of trying to solve challenges and and promote learning uh, in new creative ways using digital tools. And what prompted the move from the US over to the UK? Yeah, so um, back in, geez, I'm trying to remember now, everything gets a little fuzzy over time, but back in um, 2014, um, I think it was April or so, my wife received an email um, from a colleague of hers. She used to uh, work with Pearson, the education company, Mm -hmm. and they asked her if she could come over to uh, the UK, to London specifically, to run comms for the CEO of Pearson. And so it was this wonderful uh, ad, you know, career advancement opportunity for my wife. And so she said, hey, you want to move to the UK? And I said, that'll be great. I don't know anybody uh, in the UK, in the HE sector. And uh, my business is all based around people knowing who I am. So a uh, little bit of panic, a little bit of anxiety. But we decided, uh, you know, in, in sort of the interest of my wife's career, it was a great move. And so we came over uh, in 2014. And then in sort of early 2015, I secured um, my right to work so mm-hmm. I could actually go out and do stuff and get paid for it. Uh, and, and yeah, I've been, we've been over here now, gosh, for nearly five years. Did you find it difficult to, to build your network over here? I guess, you know, because I had unintentionally built my network in the U.S. by way of speaking at association events and conferences prior to doing it for, for pay, um, I had been sort of on the scene in a way. And so I, I, I had built up a network kind of across the country. And so coming to a, a new country uh, with with a different sector, I mean, we speak the same language, but the words are very different mm-hmm. in terms of meaning and the, the structure for institutions is different. Uh, and so the first you know six months or even a year was spent, for me anyway, it was a lot of just learning and listening and 
and meeting people via social media, connecting on Twitter, connecting on LinkedIn, you know, learning terminology and just reaching out and, and trying to be available for people, you know, if they had questions or ideas or comments about social media, uh, just trying to be present in those spaces. Uh, and, and then over time getting invitations to come out and, and work with universities, um, you know, your previous institution, uh, mm-hmm. Included, uh, and so yeah, it's no, been the first, first time we met, wasn't it, when you came up to Warwick? Exactly, you know, and we we shared our, our common affinity for the band Slipknot, mm-hmm. uh, which you know they're originally from Iowa, and I'm originally from Iowa, and so uh, which is funny because most people in the UK when they start talking about Iowa, they talk about Bill Bryson, Not who me. I had never heard about. <laughs> I mean, for all we know, you could be a member of Slipknot. They do wear masks. Exactly, um, exactly. It's our cover. <laughs> so, so take me back five years. Then you're you're coming over to the UK. What did you, in terms of the UK higher ed sector, what what did you know about it? What did you think about it before you came here? I had a very limited view uh, in terms of just knowledge around you know the UK higher ed sector. To be perfectly honest, I mean, my wife attended Goldsmiths. Uh, and, and had, you know, because she's a dual citizen, she, she has lots of knowledge around, uh, you know, kind of UK HE and professional sector, as well as just, you know, what it's like to live over in the UK. Cause that's where a lot of her family's from. Uh, and I knew very little, I mean, I, I had traveled, I guess, maybe more than a lot of Americans, you know, that whole classic trope of Americans not having their passport and never leaving the country. Uh, sorry, dad. But again, <laughs> uh, my folks actually have traveled now outside of the country a couple of times, which is kind of a neat thing f- uh, for them. But I, I think so much of it was literally just sort of, it was like going back to university for me, sort of having to just read as much as possible on every single institutional website that I came across, learn all the, the, the new acronyms for different sector agencies. You do like an acronym. Oh, I mean, in the States too. And it's sort of like, I felt like I had it all figured out and then you come to a new place and it's all, you know, here's a bunch of other acronyms <laughs> that you don't know how to pronounce because everybody knows the pronunciations. And, and then, you know, just doing a lot of things like connecting with people on LinkedIn that you know, usually you connect with people on LinkedIn when you know them, when you've worked with them. And I said, I don't have time for that. I, I need to connect with people now uh, and just introduce myself, which is what I did. And um, yeah, I mean, I learn new stuff every day living in the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, this is probably going to come out after uh, my family and I have moved back to the to US. Uh, so I'm going to get my tenses all uh, messed up here. But I, I literally learn new things every day in terms of you know spelling, pronunciation, structure, um, yeah, cause it, it is a very different place in terms of how universities are structured, how colleges are structured, what's a college, what's not a college, FE, HE and all that. I mean, I was going to ask you what, what the biggest challenges for you were in the first six months, but it feels like you've kind of covered it. I mean, the, all of that pronunciation and the different structure and coming somewhere with a, a blank contacts book, it, it, it's, it's a pretty daunting thing to do. Yeah. I mean, I, I always felt that... Quitting my full-time job at Oregon State University was the hardest thing I'd ever done career-wise. But I think starting a consultancy in a, in a different country was either just as challenging, if not more challenging, mm-hmm. because being American and coming to the UK, uh, is, I think, is vastly different than if you're coming from the UK and you have maybe a British accent uh, and you go to the States. Because I think that in the US, the British accent is kind of exotified in a way. 
where you know we hear that accent and we think oh that's you know just immediately charming or fascinating or interesting and i think you know i'd come and speak at uk based events and people would want to ask me later about you know my views on gun control rather than my views on you know digital engagement and social media and 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 so i i had i think it was kind of an uphill climb just in a way two part based on you know just cultural differences and knowledge and and the fact that People are different, you know, and I think in a different country. I mean, that's it's it's kind of a weird thing to say, but I mean, I would I would say something that was funny, for example, in the states, and I said the same thing that I thought was reasonably humorous here, and the first couple of times at events, no one laughed, and at least out loud. And I, I said to my wife, I said, I don't I don't think this is going to work, you know, I'm not funny in the UK, uh, I can't be a public speaker here. And she said, Don't worry, they're laughing on the inside. And whenever I tell that story now with a UK audience, everybody laughs out loud, which is very reassuring. Yeah, you've definitely nailed making audiences laugh out loud. I've seen you and speak enough times to know that I can confirm you are funny. You are oh, good thanks, at making. Thanks. You are good at Validation. making Brits laugh. Thank you. Finally, yeah. <laughs> I, I just I, you know been over here long enough. Just and we're we're leaving just after I figured out how to how to do things correctly. <laughs> so, when you first came over here and you looked at how institutions in the sector were making use of social and, and digital technologies what what did you think as, as an outsider looking at that yeah i mean i i always so i get asked this question a lot sort of you know the comparison or mm-hmm. you know like you said as an outsider what what did you see was different or similar and and i think it it's very challenging to be self-aware enough to know sort of your own bias and and um, you know, things that you like just because, you know, maybe where you're from or, 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 you know, your peer groups or your friends. And so there are certain accounts and, uh, institutions in the U S that I always gravitated towards when it came to, you know, give us examples of best practices and whatnot. And so when I came to the UK, I didn't, I tried to make a, a specific stance on not, not comparing everybody, uh, all the time because I felt that wouldn't be as helpful. Uh, but I did notice that, you know, while, a lot of U.S.-based universities and colleges were being sort of maybe less formal in their in their overall communication, be it Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or YouTube. It felt like a lot of U.K. institutions were a bit more formal, maybe a bit more sort of here's a press release that we've got on our website, our new public affairs site, et cetera, and we're going to just sort of share that, and we're not necessarily going to engage or be silly or funny or um, as personable. Uh, but that was back in 2014. I've, there's been a huge evolution, uh, and it could be my own in terms of just being more aware of what people are doing across the sector. Uh, because it's like any profession where, you know, the longer you're in a place, the more you sort of absorb and soak up what's being done. And I think that at least my perception in 2014 was that things were very formal and that nowadays it seems very similar to how USHE does their comms and engagement where it's much more personable. There's the incorporation of humor. Uh, you know, I remember back in 2014, if a UK institution even you know used emojis, that was seen as like a big risk. Uh, Groundbreaking. And, yeah, exactly. Or, or Snapchat would have been just, you know, wow, that's amazing. And now it's like everybody's kind of on the same page, realizing best practices. I mean, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. That. I mean, the time when you, when you came over, I think the sector was probably generally pretty good at doing the polite, professional pretty faceless social media they're just getting i guess i guess the more progressive ones were just getting past putting press releases out there and talking vaguely like human but now we've got universities telling racists to jog on so you know i mean the university of reading you know my hat's off to them in terms of just the way that they 
they aren't afraid to communicate like real humans on mm. a regular basis and to stand up against um, the things that are ugly in that way. Like you said, you know, racist to jog on. And I think they recently, you know, they were involved in kind of a back and forth with someone around ref- supporting refugees and they, you know, responded brilliantly uh, back to that person. And it's the kind of thing where, you know, institutions of higher learning are also places for progressive justice oriented activism. And I think that social media provides an avenue for those institutions to provide that leadership in digital spaces. And, and why shouldn't they, you know, I think that, you know, it's not just the university of Reading, it's other places as well. You know, university of Sheffield with their, we are international campaign, mm-hmm. um, which is all about supporting, uh, international students in, in a time when, you know, politically in the UK and the U S and elsewhere, uh, there are people who maybe aren't as uh, big on supporting people from other countries. And I think it's important for institutions to take a stance. And it does showcase the power and influence of digital channels. You know, the people running university social media accounts are spokespeople for these massive communities of learners, scholars, academics, students, staff, etc. And so these are really important roles. And I bet you were delighted when you realized, looking at their spelling, that the University of Loughborough was such a leader in this field. I mean, how long did it take you to work out how to pronounce that correctly? University of Loughborough. I mean, even, even you know, Warwick University. Yeah, uh, you know, yeah it's a trick certain, one, isn't it? Yeah. There's, there's a lot of different places that, um, you know, Gloucestershire, uh, that, that require um, linguistically a bit of gymnastics. They're, they're flowing off the tongue for you now. I mean, so. just spelling. I mean, it, you know, even like uh, certain tube stops in London, you know, Southwark, which is spelled Southwark. Mm. Uh, coming over, unless someone told you, it's like Cockney rhyming slang. I still, to this day, I need someone to translate for me because that's one of those sort of in-group joke things that you're just not going to get unless you're either raised in the UK or you literally carry a manual around with you at all times to translate and decode it. Yes, I keep mine in my bag, <laughs> as, as most Brits do. Um, so coming back to like, I mean, you touched on it in your, your original answer, but now now you're you're poised to head back to the uk uh, to the us US, even um looking at at the sector here and how we use those social and digital channels you said it feels like they've progressed do you still feel like there's a way to go yet in terms of how effectively those channels are being used i mean i think if you were to compare the two countries and two sectors now it's it's very comparable uh, across the board i think you're going to get you know the good the bad the ugly and the uber creative and yeah. I think that at the heart of my consultancy, uh, you know, has always been digital engagement with social media playing a huge part to that. But the the real crux of it all is, has always been organizational culture uh, as it relates to leadership and motivation, incentive, experimentation. And, and I think with the institutions that, that are doing really well, both, you know, in the UK and the US, they have leadership that either supports digital engagement initiatives, people who are, you know, on the platforms themselves, uh, in a leadership capacity, or they know enough to let their, their salaried employees do the job that they're paid to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really powerful. You know, you look at, uh, university of Glasgow and you know, their I can't remember the exact title. It's like a vice chancellor slash principal. You know, he's actually a, a huge proponent uh, of using social media, uh, to engage and lead, or uh, Santa Ono is the the president or chancellor. Now again, terrible titles. Uh, that's what Google is for. Uh, but he's he's a great advocate. For Santa Ono is for using social media um, as as a leader, as a president. And you see that with other people too, like you know Valerie Amos uh, over at the at SOAS, the 
what is it? The, the school of working on my acronyms here. Um, but yeah, Oriental and African studies. Yeah. Sorry. But I, I think that again, leadership really matters either in that they're actively participating or that they're just giving people permission because the institutions where maybe they're struggling, you can look at their social media guidelines or policy documents and, and nine times out of 10, those t- same institutions where uh, maybe they're, they're still very formal or they're not engaging like they, they wish they w- could be. Or, and, and sometimes you hear that commentary from people who work at these places. Um, it all comes down to, why why is there resistance? Why is there some sense of dissonance to using digital for all things related to student success, really? And and again, I think part of it has to do with universities, you know, the way that they recruit people, the way that job positions and descriptions are, are sort of, you know, created. There's not a lot of room in there for new things and for just, you know, we talk about digital transformation. Uh, transformation is an iterative process. It doesn't just stand still. It's not sort of frozen in carbonite. You know, it moves forward. And so I think for institutions, social media sort of shows you insights into their organization, into their culture, into their structures. And, you know, I'm fortunate in that I get to go in and try to either, you know, acknowledge and, and point out some of the things that maybe are keeping institutions from doing these things uh, or just say, okay, let's build on the great things you're already doing uh, and, and moving forward. What's, co- what's going to come next? What's coming uh, down the pipe for you all? Mm-hmm. Well, that flows very nicely into my next question. Actually, I wanted to throw in some, some big questions while we're chatting. So I guess this is the, the, th- the first of those big ones. Why is social media relevant to a university in 2019? We'll be back right after this quick message. Thanks so much for checking out this podcast. It's a brand new show, which means I can legitimately do the cliched podcast thing of asking you for a quick rating or review. It would really help us get our name out there. And of course, while you're doing that, you might as well subscribe too, so you don't miss a beat. You might also like to know that over at the Access platform, we put out a fantastic newsletter at the end of every month. It's full of great reading from around the higher ed sector, and it really will brighten up your inbox. Sign up for that and find out all about how our ACE platform will help you attract, convert, and recruit more students at theaccessplatform.com. Or send us your favorite dog gift to at TA platform on Twitter. Okay, back to the show. Why is social media relevant to a university in 2019? So social media is relevant for institutions. I mean, 2019, 2018, 2017, as we go mm-hmm. back in time, it's, it's continued to be relevant because, you know, it represents a series of, of channels and avenues for things like institutional recruitment, you know, connecting with prospective applicants, connecting with parents and families, providing, you know, just greater access to information too. I mean, I think lots and lots of people are going to institutional websites, but they might get to that institutional website by way of a beautiful photo that's posted on Instagram Mm -hmm. uh, with a link or because they saw a a student takeover on Snapchat and they saw a particular story that was interesting and captivating, Uh, you know, from then that's just purely from a recruitment perspective, but from things like teaching and learning, you see a lot of academics who are using social media to enhance the student experience, both in the physical classroom as well as for online learning environments. Uh, and, and so, you know, it's like saying, 
what's the value of email in 2019 or what's the value of, you know, text or the phone. And I think that, you know, these are communications channels and it's, they are what we make of them. So how do you think the sector can become a bit less, a bit less worried about risk when it comes to this digital and social media stuff? I mean, you touched on student takeovers there and some institutions are, are very fortunate that everyone there really gets it and embraces it. Others, you know, I know of people working in the sector who are desperate to do such a takeover and they, they have their hands tied almost because because people more senior are much more risk averse. But have you got any you got any tips for how the sector can become just less worried about that? Yeah, there's a lot of worry and there's a lot of risk uh, and a lot of sort of perceived risk too. I think people people catch the news headlines where someone went on to social and said something silly or mm-hmm. or even worse, and you know it was detrimental to their own career success or it hurt other people. And so they then take that and they use it sometimes as a way to, uh, in many ways, project their own lack of, of digital fluency into the organization. And so that becomes this sort of, well, what if this happens, therefore we shouldn't use it type of scenario. And I think that, again, as I mentioned earlier, leadership being very crucial to the overall success of digital uh, and social. And I think part of it is, you know, when I when I give a talk to a, a room full of people, you know, 100 people, 200 people at an institution, Nobody wants to look like they don't know stuff in front of their peers, especially when you're, you're working in an environment where you've got people who are subject level experts in, to, to the most like niche degree. Um, and so therefore, um, how do you get those people in an environment where they're comfortable to, to share that maybe they don't know stuff? And that, that, then that's where I go into the experimentation comment quite a bit to say, you know, okay, how do we encourage people to try new things so they don't feel that they're going to be penalized for doing that? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think organizationally, some institutions have struggled with that because, you know, if they try something new and maybe student evaluations aren't so positive about it, uh, it can hamper their career advancement and promotion, which is a big deal. And so how do you let people um, experiment with digital channels, which are always evolving, always changing, and not have them feel that their their positions are at risk because of that experimentation. Uh, and so the other thing I've, I've, I've found that could be really helpful is if you, you get people to either connect with or be at least be aware of the fact that their peers uh, at other institutions are doing uh, things with social media that are very impactful for their organization, for their mm-hmm. institution. People are usually very uh, willing to listen and acknowledge what people in similar roles are doing. You know, if you say, here's a vice chancellor at this university, they're doing amazing work. They have the same job as you. They're able to make time. And part of that making time is that they've kind of gone through the learning curve. You know, the first time you get onto various, various social media platforms, you're not going to be an expert. So it is important to have someone maybe to sort of shepherd you along. I think that's where people who are in charge of digital or social at institutions, they have many different jobs on their plates in, in terms of output, content creation, engagement. But they also have the the opportunity to teach and lead and educate and also kind of do some handholding in a way with leadership so that leadership doesn't feel so maybe so intimidated or threatened by it. So we're at this point where as we sit here recording this you know you're, you're a few weeks away from from heading back to the us it's kind of one of those points in life where i guess you're going to be naturally a bit reflective um so five years on from when you when you arrived here taking another look at the sector in the uk now are there still things that the, the sector here can learn from the sector in the US, not just in terms of digital outputs but maybe maybe on a cultural level do you think well i think one of the biggest 
differences between U.S. and U.K. higher education has been that U.S. higher education has been a very marketized, competitive sector for for decades, and you know, student recruitment being this sort of massive thing that that happens, and and there's a lot of budget and resource put into it. And I think in the U.K., while there is a lot of budget and resource put into uh, student recruitment, uh, admissions, enrollment work, it hasn't been as marketized you know, students as customers type thing for as long. Uh, and I think that, and this isn't me sort of saying as a value judgment that it's a good thing that this has been going on in the U.S., but I think as the U.K. moves towards more of a U.S. kind of model in a way with regards to recruitment, I think we're going to see more institutions in the U.K. really start to copy or emulate their peers uh, over in the States uh, with regards to how things are much more joined up and much more intentional and I think you're going to see a lot more focus on on student services, student affairs, current student experience as it relates to digital so that there's this sort of natural handoff with university marketing and comms and recruitment at the beginning to where there's people working to support students more in the middle of their journey. Uh, whereas right now, a lot of times, UK institutions, the, the digital engagement aspect is still happening via the marketing and comms teams who are really kind of more focused on the beginning of that student journey, that student recruitment piece. Okay. And what about what about the other side? So when you touch back touch down back on, on stateside and people start asking you about what it's like in the UK, is there anything from over here that's really stood out that you, you're going to be shouting about to your US colleagues? Yeah, I mean, I, I probably will be um, very gentle in my reverse sort of bringing stuff over in the sense that I think that you know, in many ways, the U.S. higher education sector views itself as the top uh, higher education sector in the world, which the U.K. higher education sector also does. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's a lot of ego there and sort of, you know, you know, you don't want to cross too many bridges that, you know, might get burned behind you. But I, I, I think that one of the things that I'll bring back uh, from from the U.K. to the U.S. is, you know, there's a, a very sincere and intentional process when it comes to how UK institutions use social media for teaching and learning. And I think that academics in the US use social media for teaching and learning, but uh, it's it's a little bit of a different process. Uh, And so I think that'll be one thing that I bring back in terms of my own work, because my own work from the US side of things when I was over there was predominantly around student affairs and admin and marketing and comms and maybe some career development work. And less on the the learning and teaching side when it comes to technology enhanced learning, and so I'm definitely going to bring that experience back to my work uh, and try to work with more academics uh, and faculty, as they say in the U.S. Because I think that you know in the U.S. because it's been marketized for so long, the student is very much at the center of everything, and, and I think in the U.K. environment where for the longest time enrollments were capped and and students kind of just came to institutions, uh, the academic still very much sits as sort of the center of everything. And, and I think that in some ways that that's been a good thing for the UK higher education sector because it, it's it's protected things like, you know, great inflation. It's just just now in 2019, the government of, for the UK is starting to talk about great inflation, but it hasn't been as big of a topic as, say, it has been in the US for as long as it's been. Mm-hmm. OK, good stuff. Well, I've got plenty more questions for you, but I feel like we should maybe make this episode a two-parter, given that it's the, the first one of the new podcast. Yeah, we're well, going to need more coffee. Yeah. yeah. So I think I think I'll pause the uh, the recording for now, and we will come back in part two okay. after we've had tea. Yes. You've been listening to Inspiration on Tap, 
a podcast brought to you by the Access Platform. Our tool gives you an authentic connection to prospective students in the form of chat, content, and FAQs. We'll help you attract, convert, and recruit more students. Find out more, book a demo, and sign up to our awesome newsletter at theaccessplatform.com or say hi on Twitter where we're at TA Platform. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Dave Musson, and my guest was higher ed consultant, writer, and blogger, Eric Stoller. He's on Twitter as at Eric Stoller. You should definitely go and thank him for giving such a great interview, but not before you check out part two of our chat, which is available right now. Our theme tune and ad music were created for us by Laptop Philharmonic. Find more of his music, including the album's Craniotomy and Two Monologues, on Spotify, Apple Music, or at laptopphilharmonic.bandcamp.com. Last of all, don't forget to subscribe to this show, Inspiration on Tap, so you don't miss future episodes. And feel free to leave us a rating or review, as it really helps. Or just tell a friend about our show, that's pretty darn great too. Catch you next time.